Today, we are um, observing throughout the world this Sunday and last Sunday, a Sunday called the Sunday for the uh, Prayer for the Persecuted Church. All over the globe, uh, Christians are suffering for their faith, and we have the privilege of standing with them. This is what First Timothy, excuse me, First Peter five says. It says, "Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood." throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do just stop now as your gathered people on the Lord's day under the authority of the resurrected Christ praying for brothers and sisters throughout this world who are suffering today. In many places, they're being put to death because simply they have faith in Christ. And, and we, we thank you that in your time, you will strengthen, confirm, establish, and bless them, that, that you will build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We thank you that one of the early Christian teachers said that the, the seed of the, or the blood of the martyrs is seed to the faith. And bless these dear people, Lord. May, may we cry out as we have the, the, the privilege in prayer, but also cry out in the marketplace and in the legislative bodies for the protection of those who cannot protect themselves. So bless them, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Pakistan, for example, is a country in Asia, population 190 million or so, 190 to 95 million. 2.5% of Pakistan people are, are loosely associated with the Christian faith. They have a Christian heritage or they're believers. So, in, in Pakistan today, 30 years ago, an anti-blasphemy law was passed in this country. And the anti-blasphemy law says that if anyone says anything against the prophet Muhammad or Islam, they can be imprisoned for their lives or their lives can be taken. Now, the, the, the problem with that is, is if you say anything against Muhammad or the Islam faith is considered blasphemy. To preach the gospel is blasphemy because one of the chief sins of Islam is to say that the eternal God would ever become a man. So, so they, they say, no, can't do that. Uh, two leading government officials have spoken out in the last few years against this law, saying we should be more broad-minded. Both those men were gunned down in the streets. There's a Christian pastor, 42 years of age, arrested last year for, for speaking blasphemy. He said, I said nothing blasphemous. He was put in prison, and two months ago he died in very um, unclear circumstances. He was shot while he was in his cell. There's a Christian woman, a very poor woman, who comes to faith in Jesus, and she gets in an argument with a neighbor about some land property rights, and the, the, the woman says, well, she blasphemed the prophet Muhammad. This woman has been arrested and is in jail and will be there for a long time. And so the, the problem with this anti-blasphemy law is you cannot <clears throat> say out loud what the person said because to repeat a blasphemy is to make yourself a blasphemer. It's an endless cycle. So the church is being persecuted Churches have been bombed in Pakistan. Nigeria is in 
Central and North Africa. Nigeria is the seventh most populous country in the world with 175 million people. You've heard of the group Boko Haram. Boko Haram means uh, Western education is forbidden. They're vehemently against the West and especially against the Christian faith. The, the Council of the American Foreign Relations in Africa has estimated that the first five months of this year, over 2,000 people were murdered by Boko Haram. The vast majority being Christians in Northeast Nigeria. You read uh, several months ago, they went into a village and kidnapped 300 girls and sold them into sexual slavery, mostly Christians. Last week, they went into a village and kidnapped 60 girls in one village and left basically what amounted to $9 for the village because they took these girls as just as a joke. And then they kidnapped 20 other girls from, again, Christian villages to sell them into sexual slavery, Boko Haram. There's a picture of some of their leaders. Holy jihadists, they call themselves. Sir and I have had the privilege the last two years to go to North Africa and to speak to a seminary that's been overseen by one of our Barnabas partners by the name of uh, the Kirks. And there have 55 to 60 pastors from, from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt. And we get together, and I really can't tell you their names. I can't tell you what country they're, what their address or anything else because, because many of these men and women are hazarding their lives for the gospel because they're talking about Jesus. Many of them single men under the age of 30, several of them. And they're, they're out there, they're just laying on the line. In one of these countries in the south, the persecution is so bad that they're crucifying Christians on a cross. In one of these countries... You have to carry with your, in your person all the time an identification paper, like our passport. It gives your name, your birthplace, your age, your height, uh, and then it says at the bottom your religion. And if, you're, if it says anything but Sunni Islam, then you can make a 1600 in your SATs. You don't go to most universities. You can be the top of your class in university and absolutely blow the top out of the graduate school exam. You don't go to graduate school. You don't get good jobs because it's Christian on your identification paper that has to be shown to everyone. They're counting the cost. Now, I, I say that in part to just let, this is what our brothers throughout the world are doing. And, and it, it's incredibly encouraging to me, but it's also incredibly disturbing to me when I look at what I complained about compared to what my brothers and sisters in the faith are doing in places like Algeria or Pakistan or North Korea or Cuba or fill in the blank. And so the question is why? Why, why, why do you do this? And that's why we're saying the book of 1 Timothy to help us understand the mind of God. And 1 Timothy says this. He says, first of all, the reason they, these people are doing this is verse 1, Jesus Christ is our hope. The reason these people are doing this, it says in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Christ came into the world to save sinners. He saves sinners through the cross, through faith in the finished work of Jesus. And then Paul talks about the glory of the cross and he says this in a doxological praise, verse 17, that to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honoring glory forever and ever. Amen. We, they do this because, really, Jesus is the only God. He's a full revelation of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one way to be right with the God who is, and that's through the work of Christ. 
That's why they do this. That's why they hazard their lives. So we go to the passage we're studying today. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says this. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay. So, this charge I entrust to you. The word charge is a command that must be done. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. This, this command, this charge, I, I give to you, Timothy. I, I entrust to you. It's a sacred trust. So, Timothy, we walk under the authority of Jesus and the apostolic word. This is weighty. I was reading this week an interview in The Guardian, a newspaper out of the United Kingdom, with a woman named Susan Sarandon. Some of us know her. She acted in numerous movies. She married Tim Robbins, was married 23 years. Two of her three children were fathered by Tim Robbins, who's known chiefly for what movie? Shawshank Redemption, a great movie. It's a great movie. So she said this, and really, let me just say, that part of this makes a lot of sense if you're a behaviorist and you have no place to stand. So let me explain. So we walk into the authority of the Bible. She says, regarding her marriage that just dissolved, that the difficulty of growing with someone you pick at a certain point in your life is that there's a built-in problem with long-term relationships. You get to a certain point and try to hold on to that. And instead of seeing that the relationship is an organism that's moving and needs to be fed and reexamined, you try to maintain the status quo, and that doesn't work. I don't know what that means, really. But I mean, she says that the problem with long-term relationships is we don't realize that relationships are like an organism. It's growing, it's moving, it's morphing, it's doing this, it's doing that. And when you try to hold on, it just doesn't work. And then she says this, and to a degree this makes sense. If you're, if you're a behaviorist and you don't have... The, the authority, okay? She says, so she recommends that, that she says fewer couples would split if they had to renew their marriage contracts every five years. Quote, if you knew the five-year deadline was coming, you'd be on good behavior. You'd work harder, and maybe you wouldn't take your partner for granted. Now, again, that, 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 that makes sense. You know, so that would slow down the divorce process. You know, you're you're visiting your kids, and they say, how's it going, Dad? Uh, pretty good, but you know, five months is the renewal contract, so I've got to be on my best behavior in the next five months to talk to your mom and to go on five more years. You know, that's as good as a lot of people can get. But, but see, when you walk under the authority of Scripture, you say, well, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus says, whatever God joins together, man should not separate. It's a life sentence. Amen. 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 <laughs> we believe with the church, this, this church believes, with the church historically, that there, there are two reasons for a marriage to be resolved, adultery and desertion. When, the, when one spouse says, 
according to First Corinthians seven, I, I, I have I don't want to have anything to do with this marriage. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. They will not come back. So, so when you stand under the authority of Scripture, you say we got we have to work it out. And that's just one one example. I was thinking about this, and I, I thought about this this this. Uh, little book called Pilgrim's Progress, written by a guy who died in 1683 named John Bunyan. And it's, other than the Bible, is the most selling book in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. And it's an allegory about a man named Christian who goes to heaven in his, his journey. And so Christian and faithful go to Vanity Fair. There's a picture of it there. And, and they're at Vanity Fair, and the people are getting Christian to Christian and, and faithful. Why don't you buy our stuff and speak like us and walk like us and do like us? And finally, Christian just turns to him and says to the, to the, to the merchants, he says, you don't understand one of the greatest lines of the book, we deal with God. I just can't get over that line. We deal with God. That there is a God who is immense and glorious and who can be defined and who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and who in the fullness of time became a child and was supernaturally birthed and he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. He rose victorious over death. He ascended to heaven. He's coming back one day and he's given us the apostolic message that's binding in our lives. And this immense, glorious God has given us a personal word in the Bible, and we deal with God, the one who can be defined, the one who has spoken. And he watches over us. As I, th I thought about that, I was reading the Old Testament, and I came across Jeremiah 44. The book of Jeremiah is a book where the prophet is, is weeping and pleading with the people to come back to God, the people of Judah. And they don't listen, they don't listen, they don't listen. They put him in a pit. They take the word he's written from God, the king does, and he tears it apart and burns it in a, in a campfire. And finally, God says this through his prophet, Jeremiah 44, verse 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah and all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord lives. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. See, earlier he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. But they said, no, no, no. And God said, I'm letting them read the consequences of their decisions, and I'm watching them, and it's going to be disaster and not good. We deal with God. We, listen church, we deal with God. And the same concept of watching is used in Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of sinners or stand in the way of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he will meditate day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. And whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like tumbleweed, chaff blown here and there. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment or sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Do you hear that? The Lord watches over our ways. He watches over us. He cares for us. We, we deal with God. And, and so we come to this text, and, and this text really is answering the question, how do you wage the good warfare? It says here in, in, in verse 19, or verse 18, it says that you may wage the good or the beneficial or the glorious or the beautiful 
warfare. And my question is, how do you wage the good warfare? And the text answers that. The first point is this. You realize that you have been entrusted with a charge. You've been entrusted. If you're a Christ follower, God's given you gifts. He's entrusted you to run the race you've been given. On his deathbed, the apostle Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Oh, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. God has sovereignly placed you in your job, in your neighborhood, in your family to be a blessing to those around you. We don't live in a happenstance world of cacophonic nothingness, a thrownness together of, of, of oblique mass of hopelessness. We live in a world of purpose with a God who's called us and gifted us and placed us. And we're running a race. We're running a race. And it's like we've been given the baton in a one-mile relay team, and you run 440 yards, and you're part of a team of four, and you've been given the baton, and you're running, and you don't know if you had the 100-yard mark, or the 200-yard mark, or the 340-yard mark, or the 437th-yard mark. Getting ready to hit the tape, you're in a race, and you run with diligence. You run with a calling upon your life. John Calvin said of this concept, he said, what is there that either ought to give or can give us greater cheerfulness than to know that God has appointed us to do what we are doing? God has appointed you to do what you're doing. And some of you are in the middle of a tough part. Some of you are just in the middle of the middle. Some of you are in the middle of a good thing. God has appointed you to do that. Represent him in your neighborhood, to your family. I saw a mother this week. She has younger children. She said, this is hard. <laughs> this is hard. I said, I know it is. Said, I'm just tired all the time. It's hard. But God's appointed you to be a mom for these little kids right now. Do not miss the blessing. She said, I know. We had a new members class this weekend, wonderful group of people, and everybody left the luncheon yesterday, and I was talking to this wonderful young couple with a small little boy they were holding and just really fine people and they the, the young woman says uh, I, I've got a sibling a brother who is maybe a genius he just is incredibly bright academically he's always excelled beyond everyone else and he's in a profession now with for this uh, you have to be very very bright and this is what he tells me time after time he says I believe there's a God, and I pray to God, but I cannot define this God. I just believe there's a higher power. And I talked to him about Christ. I talked to him about the gospel. I, she said, what books can I give him? Because he reads, he reads them and he talks to me. I said, well, I recommend these books. And she nodded like, she's already done that. You know, she's been, been thinking about that. And I gave her a couple of quotes, and I said, I'll pray for him. And she said this. She said, I would give my life today if my brother would come to faith in Jesus. I didn't respond. And sometimes you're just stunned into silence. I'm going, really? I was thinking, wow. I thought, is there anybody that I can say that about? 
It was a holy moment. I, I just didn't say anything. I just kind of looked down and thought, oh my, praise God. See, see, she, what she's saying is, I'm running the race and I'm running it with intentionality because I've been entrusted with a charge from God. I've got the baton. I'm going. I'm going. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn entitled, A Charge to Keep, and it says, A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never dying soul to save, and fit it for the sky. But the second stanza is by far the best. He says, To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my Father's will. Serve the present age, church, where you are. Pray for the gospel to flourish around the world, but serve where you are. Grow where you're planted. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. You know, how do you fight the good fight of faith? You realize you've been called and you've been entrusted with a charge, a command that must be fulfilled. Number two, you, you give yourself, you embrace the prophecies. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And you say, explain that. I'll try to very quickly. I can discuss this much more detail later, but let me just hit a few points. Prophecy in the Bible was a gift given to people to foretell or foretell the Word of God. It was binding and authoritative. So, so before the, the New Testament was put together in the early church, the New Testament was loosely put together about 150 to 200 A.D., and then it was affirmed by the church in 397 in Carthage. Okay? So, so, so in the early church, they didn't have the apostolic writings in full, and so a man or a woman would be moved by the Holy Spirit, stand up and says, this is what God says, and they would lay it out. That was called prophecy. It was something God gave to men or women to stand up in the assembly and speak it out. And the church has believed for 2,000 years, basically, the vast majority of the church, that when the, when the Scripture was completed, when the apostolic writings were fulfilled, that the prophecy was no longer needed. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember those words spoken over you when we prayed for you and fasted and set you apart and you were ordained. I want you to remember those words and take heart that God is at work in your life. Remember those promises. Church, today for us, today for us, these are the promises of God. You build your life on these promises. The Bible says everything you need for life and godliness is here. I need to, be, need to be a student of the book to think this is God's book of promises and instruction to me. If I'm to wage the good warfare, I've got to embrace the prophecies. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped, every good work. The, the Scripture. Joshua, General Joshua is going into the Promised Land. God says to him, this book of the law, the first books, five books, the books of Moses, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But honor you shall meditate day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. Second Peter chapter 1 says this, verse 19 to 21. And we have something 
more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or Hebrews 1, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Jesus, the ultimate final revelation of God. So if we're to go strong, we will embrace the prophecies. Be a people of the book. Meditate, think through it. Pray through it. Sing it. That's the way you can fight the good warfare. The third thing you do is you, you hold, tenaciously hold, verse 19, to faith and a good conscience. Faith here can be a system of belief or it can be personal faith. Both can be allowed in the text. And a good conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that is obedient to the known will of God as you read and study it and God impresses it upon your heart. It's a good conscience. You hold to faith and a good conscience. The Apostle Paul is making a defense before an authority in Acts 24. And verse 10 says that, Paul says, I cheerfully make my defense. And then he says this in verse 14 about a good conscience. He says, but, th but this I confess to you that according to the way or the Christian faith, which they call, the, the, the rulers call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing, that, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Therefore, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. Paul says, because I believe there's an eternity and there's a resurrection of the dead, and because I believe there's a great God who's called me to himself, and because I believe I'll stand before this great God, I take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. I don't leave things unsettled. If I can, as much as it depends upon me, I'm at peace with all men. I don't run people down. I, I, I'm, I'm very careful because I deal with God. And, and if, brothers and sisters, if we're to fight the good warfare, we've got to tenaciously hold to a system of truth, personal faith, and a good conscience. <clears throat> which brings me to point number four, which is a, a difficult point, but it's in the text. As we look at this, let me make this statement. If I die this week or in the near future and you get another pastor, make sure you get a man who believes in preaching through sections or books of the Bible primarily. There's nothing wrong with topical sermons occasionally, but, but when, when you preach through books of the Bible and large sections of the Bible, you have to deal with the text that's in front of you. Understand that? So, so we, we hit this patch in 1 Timothy 1 that's just a hard place to hit. Um, it's, being, it's about two men who blasphemed and who Paul says he handed over to Satan. That's just hard. 
Uh, no one's going to wake up and say, hey, this week I'm going to preach on handing people over to Satan because they're, they're, bla they're blasphemers. You're just not going to preach on that unless you're really kind of weird because that's just not something that you're going, oh, this is going to be fun. This is a hard text, but it's so profitable. The point is that, that, that if I am going to fight the good fight of faith, I must be in vital relationship with and open communion with a local church where I can be corrected, taught, admonished, and loved. That's it. This is what happened. In this church at Ephesus, in the area, there were two men named Hymenius and Alexander. And Paul says this. But by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By the way, Paul had been shipwrecked four times. He knew what being shipwrecked was all about. Shipwrecked means you get on the rocks, you can't get off. They made shipwreck their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. To blaspheme means to speak against a central teaching of the Christian faith that, that denies the reality of God and what he's done. That's blaspheme. That's being a blasphemer. So, so these men, we don't know what they did. We know in 2 Timothy, there's a guy named Hymenius who went around preaching that the resurrection has already taken place, upsetting people because he says you have no hope because Jesus has already come and the dead have already been raised. We don't know if that's the same Hymenius. There's also an Alexander in 2 Timothy called the coppersmith who did Paul much harm. But we don't know if that's the same Alexander. We're not sure what these guys taught, but they blasphemed. And so Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This handing over is always to bring people back. It's not to punish. These men violently rejected. The word here for reject means to violently push aside. They violently rejected the faith, and they blasphemed God. So the best way to explain this is to read what happened in, a, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is dealing with a situation with this church, and he says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of the kind that was not tolerated even among pagans. He said, you guys are involved in something that even the pagans in Corinth don't do and involved incest. A man was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom, we think. And so this is what Paul says. Verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, you see, when the church is together in worship and prayer and seeking God, there's power. There's power. When, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, the apostolic authority with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's to claim, it's to bring him back. He says, this guy has walked away. This guy has, he's shipwrecked. He's, he's on the rocks. He can't get off. He's violently rejected the things of the Lord and, and the standards of God. And Paul says, no, I've, I've handed him over. You see, when you're in the body of Christ and you're, you're sitting under the teaching and you're in fellowship and you're being shepherded and you're being watched over 
There's safety and there's protection. But if you intentionally absent yourself and you walk away, you open yourself up to the attacks of the devil. You walk in the area where the devil is more likely to be at work. There is safety in being in the body of Christ and being shepherded. And I think I've told our elders this. We're working on this. We need to shepherd better. We do not do the job I think we need to do in shepherding the souls of the people who are part of this church. And we're going to be held account, accountable on the day of judgment for the way we love people and care for them and, and talk to them about what's going on in their lives. That, that's part of fighting the good warfare of faith. You're vitally involved in a local church. Well, this is what happened. As Paul Harvey would say years ago, here's the rest of the story. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we think this is the same guy. The church goes to this guy, says, this is what's happened. You're living in open incest. You're living in a crass, horrible relationship. You're violating the standards of God. You're causing pagans to mock the standards of Jesus. Repent, brother. Please repent. Please come back. Please get out of this relationship. This is what Paul says. He says, now if anyone, chapter 2, verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure... Not to put it too severely, but to all of us. Listen, it's painful when brothers and sisters walk away from the Lord. It hurts. Oh, it hurts. When they reject and they push themselves away from the body and they push themselves away from God's standards. It just hurts. For, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you ought rather to forgive and comfort him or, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And he says, do this so that, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. See, this is the peril of the pendulum. You know, you had a group over here, they were lax and uncaring and no big deal. Paul says, you know, you're wrong. And so instead of coming to the biblical area, they, they, they discipline him and talk to him. And, and then they're way over here. Now they're sanctimonious and uncaring. Paul says, listen, the guy's repented. Embrace him. It's time to party. It's over. Embrace. This is time to say that which is lost is now found again. Thanks be to God. Don't let Satan outwit you by being either too lax or too harsh. But there's safety, there's protection in the fellowship of the church. And you need to be part of a local body of believers sitting under the teaching, kind of in the shepherding council, being part of the body of Christ. There's safety there. That's how you fight the good warfare. I recently read about this situation. This is the marathon recently held in Beijing, China. Uh, this particular marathon, which is 26.2 miles. That's a long way to run. That's a long way to run. 26.2 miles uh, had 30,000 uh, participants on the day of the race, a report was released that said the particulate matter in the air was 14 times higher than the maximum safe level on the day of the race. So the toxic level was 14 times higher than it should have been. Uh, I would have found someone else to run a marathon. I've got to be honest with you. Um, the newspaper said outdoor activities is not suitable today for children and the elderly. Please stay inside. At the end of the marathon, there was trucks of, of, of water where the organizers washed down with sponges or hoses the participants to wash toxins off their skin. So that's 
They ran a marathon. I mean, you, this is the way this guy ran the marathon. That's pretty disarming to run with a, a mask on. And I was thinking this, reading this passage, I thought, how do we live in a world that's fallen without breathing in the toxins? The Bible tells us. Number one, understand we've been entrusted with a charge from the living God to represent him. Number two, we embrace the prophecies. Number three, we tenaciously hold on to faith and a good conscience. And number four, we're vitally involved in the body of Christ where we're encouraged and loved and shepherded and cared for. And, and we do this to represent Jesus in the world. We do this to represent Christ to those around us. We do this to live in such a fashion that the word is honored and we can teach and preach the gospel about the conquering king who's bringing men and women and boys and girls to himself through the gospel. I'll live, let's, live, let's live that way. Let's pray. So, Lord, I thank you for the day that you've given us. It's, a day, it's, just, it's the Lord's day. Thank you for the privilege of saying, Abba, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the glory of the cross and knowing that our sins are dealt with uh, by the living God, knowing that we brought nothing to the table and you brought everything. Uh, and in and, and, and response to that, help us to say with Wesley of old, um, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify. And let us glorify you. Let us embrace this prophecies, the scripture. Let us tenaciously hold to faith and a good conscience. And, and Lord, let us be people who are vitally involved with one another, uh, caring for one another, speaking the truth to one another, to the glory of your name. May we fight the good fight. Uh, Lord, work in us, I pray, and work through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.